Welcome to the Materials Evolution Podcast with Fluency Marketing's Gemma Smith and Artec Materials' Dr. Geraint Havard. Joining us today is a good friend of ours, Joe Summers. Joe has been working in the composites industry since 1999, initially working at SP Systems, which became Gurret, in various capacities until 2015, when he left Gurret to become Sales and Marketing Director at North Thimply Technology. Joe then joined Airborne UK as Managing Director and Group Commercial Director, and has also been a Director of Composites UK since July 2020. We hope you'll enjoy finding out about Airborne and their unique approach to composite materials, and how their technology has the potential to take composites into the realm of true mass production. Hi Joe, uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast, welcome. Thanks Geraint, it's a pleasure. Okay, so I'm going to start off with um, with a, a question that so many people want to know the answer to. Um, why composites? <laughs> well, yeah, I'd like to say it was a, a highly thought out strategic plan of mine, but uh, I guess like most people, it was by luck or you fall into certain roles. Um, for me, it was like I was at um, I was at university actually. My, um, my my parents moved house, moved to the Isle of Wight. Um, I was a student in debt and uh, with little to do in the holidays. So um, I applied for a summer job at a, at a small composites company, um, mainly because I thought it would have some relevance to um, to my degree and, and maybe give us some pocket money. So, yeah, I applied to SP Systems, which was this small resin formulating company in Cowes on the Isle of Wight. And um, that, was a, that was the length of it, really. But, um they were growing very fast and um, they invited me back. So uh, I did a couple of holidays and um, and in the end that turned into a job offer. So um, that was my my start into, into composites. Okay. And so I assume you were studying something um, relevant at the time. You say you were at university. Um, what were you studying? Yes. Um, so my degree was chemistry. Um, Again, not a huge amount of thought even behind that. I uh, I was reasonably good at maths and science at school, so uh, thought that um, I'd just do something I thought I could pass. So ch- chose chemistry, um, and and liked Warwick. So that was uh, again just sort of fortuitous, really, that I fell into that. And then the degree kind of made sense with this job opportunity that I happened to find in in the holidays. And fortunately, I fell into a company that was growing fast and. Had a need for a sales guy with zero experience and only a chemistry degree. Obviously, you've been with in the uh, composite industry for a while, and you've been through various roles through SP Systems and Gurret, then on to NTPT and now Airborne. Do you have any career highlights to date that you'd like to tell us about? Uh, yeah, I suppose there's there's two that stand out for me. Um, both, both really in the early stages of my career, I suppose, which is when you're you're, you're looking for a win or, or something to establish yourself. And uh, the first was I started the a component business of the automotive component business of of Gurit uh, back in my mid twenties. So uh, they had a material technology which they thought was quite appropriate for automotive, and um, uh, myself and a colleague basically sort of cold called Aston Martin. And started a process of trying to pitch them this uh, this new materials technology, and um, I guess right place again, right time. Bit of luck always involved in these things, but um, 
we managed to convince Aston Martin that they they should buy this interesting new material, which is called Sprint and is quite well known today as an out of autoclave material. Um, and also convince Gurit that we shouldn't sell material, but we should actually make the finished component. We should make bonnets, we should make boot lids um, and become a tier one uh, supplier to the automotive industry. So, yeah, I think, you know, that was that was quite a, a brave thing to try and do in my early 20s. And um, we had a lot of fun uh, doing that. Myself and my colleague, Martin, had a few nice trips out to Detroit trying to pitch some of the big uh, OEMs out there. and. Um, I mean, we were highly unsuccessful actually in selling anything into Detroit, but we had some extremely fun trips. So um, uh, that was that was certainly a highlight. Um, and probably the other one for me was um, after automotive. I I was responsible for setting up the factory of Gurit in China. So uh, yeah, I was 28. They asked me to lead the project to invest some money and set up a factory in uh, in Tianjin. And uh, I. Yeah, literally started with a blank sheet of paper, Google, and uh, started to make some phone calls. And uh, two years later, we'd invested 12 million euros. We'd established a factory, a company in China, and an organization. So, um, yeah, we uh, gave me a lot of confidence. That was a, that was a pretty interesting trip. And uh, I lived out in China for six months, which, um, yeah, again, gave me a very different perspective on the world. And I think probably set set the foundations for what I did later in my career with the, with the confidence that that gave me that, yeah, if I could do that, I could do, could do pretty much anything. That sounds like uh, two really, really interesting uh, projects you worked on there. Um, I mean, to go to another country and set up a factory is obviously fascinating, but do we take out of this that you are responsible for the introduction of composites in the automotive sector? Oh, oh uh, no, I do not think I can take responsibility for that. I think uh, I mean, composites have been used as a, I mean, they were in F1, you know, in the 70s and the 80s. And, and um, you know, their eventual application into composite, into, into automotive, you know, mainstream automotive, I think was somewhat inevitable. But um, I certainly think I was there towards the beginning of things. And, um, and maybe, maybe at the beginning of Class A carbon fiber composites into automotive, but uh, yes, I, I, I wouldn't attempt to take any more credit than that. <laughs> I think um, I think it, it I think it highlights quite a key characteristic of a lot of people that are, are in this industry, and that is, you know, that we do have to be daring and we have to dare to be different, you know, and 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 convince um, many industries that you know this this new material, because of course, you know, in, in terms of material uses, it is still relatively new. Um, to take a punt, to try. Um, so yeah, no, good stories there. Um, so in terms of Airborne, which is obviously where you are today, um, what's what's the history of Air Airborne and, and what does it offer as a company? Uh, yeah, so Airborne uh, was 25 years old last year, um, founded by two aerospace engineers from, uh, from Delft University. And um, two of those founders are still with the company today. So I think that says a lot about, uh, about how we operate and entrepreneurialism and, and also engineering-led. Uh, um, uh, the company has manufactured components, it's, it's designs and engineers things, uh, and uh, even developed its own um, oil and gas uh, product, a, a spoolable composite pipe, 
which was then later spun off as a business. But today, Airborne is, is a technology company. We're mainly in automation and digitalization. So that's, um, I mean, you refer to the story of, you know, trying to make composites more accessible and more usable. You know, in the early stages, that was about, you know, showing the weight saving, the stiffness to weight, the strength to weight ratio of composites and trying to make them cost effective enough to justify their performance benefits. And I think we've maybe continued on that path in how we use automation and digitalization to, to take cost out of the conversion of composites. So inherently, their kind of cost per kilo is higher than metals. That cost issue is exacerbated by the kind of relatively labor intensive ways in which parts are made. And uh, Airborne's goal is to try and disrupt that through using robotics and automation and, and the software and digital tools to apply automation to try and take some of that laborious labor element out of composites and I guess ultimately make them um, make them more competitive and get more more people using them. I don't know if you were there a few years ago, uh, Joe, when we were at the Competits UK annual conference and Shanta Desai from uh, Nissan was, she basically dragged the composites industry over the coals, over the fact that we take too long to make parts. Um, and it's quite clear that we've been held back by the manual nature of manufacturing composite components uh, and it lead into a slow manufacturing rate. Can you tell me some of the technologies that Airborne are trying to develop to sell to the industry, which will help with these issues? Yes, I mean, that's interesting. I, I, I don't recall that presentation, but um, I do think, you know, the drivers in aerospace, automotive, different markets are all, are all different. Um, and some of our machines, most of them were originally developed for, for aerospace, where we see the opportunity, you know, rates are increasing, cost is an issue, we need to try and help that. But in, in automotive, I mean, you can agree with Shanta that it's a table stake in, in some respects, automation. You, you simply can't be in that market unless you can produce tens or hundreds of thousands of, of components. So forget the business case for automation, you know, just to be able to make stuff fast enough, you have to apply automation. In other markets, it's it's more of a business case. So aerospace in particular, things can be done manually, um, but maybe a machine can do it quicker, but it can do it uh, more cost-effectively, saving people, and we find saving material. So most of the solutions we've got are, are some combination of you actually save material, and that pays for the machine. You isolate people from difficult health and safety environments like honeycomb potting materials and then the labor savings as well all contribute to um to a solution that makes sense so yeah we've got four like standard solutions we've got a, an automated tape laying machine we've got automated kitting which is you know ply handling off a cutter automated honeycomb potting uh, and automated preforming and then we build upon those blocks those building blocks to create um other more integrated or uh, bespoke solutions. So I first met you, Joe, at uh, the Composition Sports Conference in 2016, back when you were when you were working for North Infight Technology. An indelible impression was left, right? <laughs> yeah, I, 
I, mean, I hope we have the opportunity to tell the story of today. Yeah. I, I, I go ahead if you want to tell the story in in your words as the impartial observer, because I, I don't think Gemma saw this, even though she arranged the conference. Well, there was, there was actually two episodes that that left an impression on me, Geraint. Both both sporting goods and composites related, but. I, I seem to recall we were at Loughborough. Um, I went because I was interested in golf at the time, um, and they had a, a machine for demonstrating golf equipment. But they wanted to demonstrate um, a tool for how hard a football is kicked, for sort of uh, a device for helping professional sports teams. And they asked for a volunteer, and you bravely um, stepped forward and with your slightly loose-fitting loafer, kicked the football as hard as you possibly could. And the football went quite far, but your loafer went twice the distance and at twice the speed through the only gap in the netting of this facility. And I think ended up on the top of the freezer or some sort of temporary building they had, um, where it had to be then later retrieved. I, I think it was somebody's. Um, I think it was somebody's locker actually, and all I remember is I actually really wanted to do it right, and I looked round. I thought I'll let somebody else put their hand forward and put put their hand up and uh, want to take on this responsibility. Nobody did, so I thought I'm in here. I want to see how hard I can kick a football, and all I remember is as I looked up, I could see two projectiles. <laughs> flying from the corner of my eye. And yeah, as you mentioned, the uh, the shoe went through the only hole in the net in, and then behind that, there was a Perspex screen. And the Perspex screen had a, a gap probably the size of a letterbox in the entire Perspex screen, and it found that gap <laughs> and landed on top of the... Uh, on, on top of this, uh, this guy's locker. And obviously, I had to walk around then uh, with... A mild sense of embarrassment, but I'm going to maintain that it was all a uh, it was all a sales ploy because everybody well, knew what Artec was after that. Everybody knew Artec after that. Everybody knew Garant. I'm sure most of your success has led from that from that moment. Um, and then I remember about 18 months later, you joined me on the uh, JEC stand, the NTPT JEC stand, where we were demonstrating a carbon fiber golf shaft, and you swung harder than anybody had swung previously that day. And I think you may have connected with the floor rather than the golf ball and snapped the head off the driver, if I remember rightly. No, 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 no. I, I topped the ball. And again, there was, a, there was a net at the back to catch a ball. And there's probably a one-inch gap under the net. It went under the net, hit the back wall, and the ball went flying through into the Czech trade show hall, causing all sorts of chaos for anybody who happened to be walking past. Of course, yes, that was it. <laughs> so as much as I enjoy sport, I think the summary you can take from this is me, sport, and compasses together in some sort of trade setting is not a good, it's not a safe mixture. No, I think stay in the lab grind and, uh, <laughs> and, and don't attempt to fire a projectile of any kind anywhere. If there's a, if there's even a postage stamp hole, yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm actually wondering how I missed that. I mean, I, I remember the standard JEC very well. Um, I remember 
somebody trying to convince us to uh, to have a go and I managed to, to walk off without going anywhere near a, a golf shaft so we're uh, feeling quite pleased with myself now having heard the, the great story come up all these years later <laughs> excellent excellent but um going back to your time at NTPT obviously you had a automated tape layup system there, but from what I can see from the airborne website your system seems to go a bit further can you tell me about the system that you've got at Airborne? Uh, yeah, so um, there's a variety of different technologies you can use to automate. Uh, the NTPT system was a sort of gantry-based system. Um, the Airborne uh, laminated cell is a robot-based, um, which gives it a, a great deal more uh, more freedom and more, more flexibility. Um, so it's designed for a variety of industries. It's um, integrating both material deposition, but also cutting. So you, you, you can put a pizza wheel or, or a cutter on the end of the robot. Um, and what, what we're demonstrating at the moment is the ability to integrate quite a few functions. So for example, you can move directly from CAD to ply shapes, which are nested and then produced by the tape layer. So it will deposit each layer, it will cut the individual shapes, and it can then pick those shapes and assemble them into a, into a 2D preform. So it does go beyond purely just the uh, UD tape deposition step into a kind of far more integrated uh, system that's actually building uh, building preforms, you know, suitable for, for autoclave or for rather than curing, um, all the way up from that from that basic form of laminate. And, and uses all the digital tools to help you do that, um, including the ability, we do have a, a portal. So you can remotely design your laminate. You can design the shape, the orientations, the number of plies, the materials you want to use, and you can upload that onto the, uh, onto the airborne system. And then our tape layer in the Netherlands can manufacture that to preform remotely and, and send it back to you. So this is, sort of towards the idea of being able to use equipment or have manufacturing done as a service. If, if CapEx, if you want to buy a machine and you've got the CapEx to do that and there's a business case, you know, you should, you should buy the machine. But if you want to use automation on a less frequent basis, you can just upload the product you need. We will make it using our automation and then, and then send that to you. Okay, that's all really interesting. Um... Allied to the basic automation systems, there's a full industry 4.0 approach assembly line being pushed by Airborne. Um, it, it, it's very unique to the composite industry because we're not used to seeing assembly lines in composites. I read that it can produce a million parts per year. So that works out it's roughly two parts per minute, which is bang on the money as far as the automotive sector is uh, talking about. Do you think that this is the sort of technological leap that will move composites into real mass production in the comp in in the automotive sector? Uh, yeah, I think so. It's um, it was originally designed for com consumer electronics. Uh, actually, that line um, that's another market where the production volumes, you know, typical laptops or or, or um, you know personal electronic equipment requires you to be able to produce hundreds of thousands of laminates per month. So again, it's a rather a table stake to be able to um, produce that, that many. Uh, you know, I think 
composites are inherently more expensive per kilo. So you have to take a fully holistic view into uh, developing a process that minimizes all of the additional costs. So it takes in raw materials at uh, one end, you know, basic unidirectional form, low cost materials. They're thermoplastics, which gives you the ability to achieve these very quick cycle times because you're not relying on the, the cross-linking of, of thermosets. Um, there's inspection of the raw materials. So it's making adjustments on the fly for the quality of the raw materials that are coming in. And ultimately, it's taking the product through all the way to a packed item. So it cuts it, orientates it, presses it, uh, inspects it again, and then puts it ready to be put into the box to send to the next the next process. So I think you know the, the geometry of the part it makes is relatively simple, which helps. And thermoplastic certainly helps with the cycle time. But the principles of, of automated and fully sensorized manufacturing is you know, definitely the future when it comes to um, you know, establishing composites in, in these industries in, in higher volumes and uh, you know, more applications. I think what our listeners will want to get from that then is obviously it's been used on fairly small basic shapes now. Do you have the capability of scaling this up to larger, more complex parts with this same system? Yeah, I think that some some adjustments would need to be made. Um, you know, what's possible with 2D shapes in terms of sort of pressing and um, material consolidation is, is a lot simpler than a three-dimensional shape. But I think that's where you need a company that uh, fully understands composites because you cannot just automate without understanding the peculiarities of composites. These brittle, stiff fibers, the weird permeability of different materials, the fact that the resin changes performance and properties depending on what temperature it's at. You know, unless you understand all those factors, you've got no chance in developing um, machines that can produce the three-dimensional forms that are needed at high rate. So, yeah, that's where we're spending a lot of our R&D time, um, both in the UK and in the Netherlands, using collaborative R&D programs to develop uh, the technologies around three-dimensionalizing some of these high-rate processes that are needed for, um, for these markets. And I guess, um, you know, Looking at the speed in which you know you can you can make products you can you can push them through the the product life cycle um, design cycle, um, I guess cost and and production cost comes into it and and that's somewhere where in the past um, certainly I've always found whenever I've been you know talking to end users they they immediately rule out the use of composites, um, and are you finding that you know now when you're talking to those end users they're willing to have a conversation um, and, and perhaps willing to, to talk about how composites can be used. Yeah, I think um, that's why composites, I, I, I like it. it. You know, there's always new opportunities. It's not fixed. It's not, uh, it's not static. And there's always new opportunities. It's just getting the right value proposition. Everybody wants stiff, strong, very lightweight things. It tends to be useful in most markets, but, you have to get the economic proposition right to make it work. And, you know, we started with the, um, the opportunities like in aerospace where, you know, a kilo saved, everybody understands the value of that and it makes sense. But if we're going to broaden composites use, we have to continually increase, increase the, um, the value proposition. And 
one of the aspects that affects that is you know throwing 20 or 30 percent of it in the bin yeah. you can't you can't do that and expect composites to be competitive against other forms of material so you know at least some of our technologies are purely around increasing material yield you know the buy to fly ratio if you will to um and it's it's a question of sustainability right you it's not just economics you 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 can't be throwing 30% of your material in the bin into landfill in the 21st century. That That's not okay anymore. So um, we kind of think there's an agenda there that we can tap into too with our with our technology. Yeah, okay, interesting. Um, obviously, you mentioned um, that you work across a number of industries then. Um, I'm going to talk to you about you know one industry that we've talked to you a lot about recently, and that's the space industry. So um, I can see from your website, um, you've got a number of cutting edge clients within the space industry, um, but it it seems that you're working on taking that science fiction to fact. Um, tell us how Airborne is working on projects to develop flying cars as early as 2023. Well, yeah, UAM and UAV, as it's known, sort of urban air mobility, urban air vehicle is, is a super interesting segment. And actually, you can argue it sort of shares attributes from both aerospace and automotive you know they're flying vehicles often manned so they have certification requirements quite similar to to aerospace but the production volumes that these companies are talking about are in the thousands per month so they require an automotive approach in terms of productivity so quite a logical fit for automation and for airborne technology and um you know, we're working with a number of uh, of um, OEMs and tier ones that are active in the UAM UAV space, and uh, I guess we can't take personal credit for anybody who manages to fly something before twenty three twenty four. But um, I, I guess our technology would be part of the solution that will enable, maybe not the first one even, but but the production rates that these guys are talking about. Um, once they're commercialised and uh, and industrialised, sounds like pretty exciting times. So, um, you're also working with TUDELF to develop the fastest hyperloop system in the world. Sounds like another exciting project there. Yeah, well, I guess we. Um, it's not a project I'm directly involved in. I don't know a huge amount, but I know that you know our links with local universities and um, with sort of cutting edge projects. You know. Are, are really important to us. So um, um, both for the sort of marketing benefits of being associated with cool, cool projects like that, um, you know, and in the UK as well, we're all part of one big sort of interesting composites ecosystem. Like you said at the beginning, everybody knows everybody, even competitors are friends. So, um, you know, it's good to give a bit back. And um, if we've got some spare material that's coming to the end of its life and that can be helpful to a to a team that's trying to develop something interesting, then um, yeah, we're happy to try and help out. It sounds like a really interesting time to be involved with Airborne. I mean, your facilities look amazing from your website. And as we've spoken about, there's some really exciting projects ongoing. I hear you hiring as well. Tell us more about what you're currently looking for. Yeah, um, it is an interesting time. So um, in particular in the Netherlands, we're looking to hire an automation lead. Um, at the moment. Um, in the UK, um, we're looking to, to recruit for a couple of roles. We, we call it project engineers. That's quite a generic title for us that 
people kind of do everything. If you're a project engineer, a bit of engineering, a bit of tooling design, process engineering, CAD work, and so on. So uh, we've just got a couple of big collaborative R&D programs starting, which um, yeah, we need some additional resource for. So we're desperately looking for people to come and help us and uh, also to recruit a business development manager for, uh, for automotive. Um, uh, those are the key ones at the moment. As you can imagine, it's a tricky time. The aerospace market's a little bit um, wobbly at the moment due to COVID. So uh, I think you've got to be careful with major hiring at uh, these delicate times. But I'm pleased to say that, yeah, things are looking quite good for us and we are still looking to bring in, um, bring in, bring in good people. Yeah, it's really, really positive to hear that. And I think um, a lot of people listening to the podcast will be um, will be pleased to hear it, especially um, the fact that you're taking on someone to do business development in the automotive sector. So looking for someone that can follow in your footsteps, perhaps, Joe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, hopefully a bit more successful than me, but yeah. <laughs> uh, modest. If, if somebody is interested, how should they, who should they contact? How should they get get in touch with you? Yeah, I think probably the web page. We've got a careers page on uh, on airborne.com. So I'd encourage people to go and uh, have a look at that. Um, if they send their CV in through through the the web, it comes directly to me, to, to Miroslav, our engineering manager. So the, the people hiring will see your CV directly. It's not, not particularly filtered in that respect. So, um, yeah, if you um, go and take a look on that, make, make, upload your, your details, and um, I'm sure someone would be in touch. Excellent, excellent. Well, um, just to round off uh, today's today's interview, um, we wanted to ask a few light-hearted questions. So I'm gonna I'm gonna kick that off with what what are your hobbies, Joe, and what do you like to do in your spare time? Yeah, well, I guess we've had a bit more spare time recently, haven't we? Um, yeah, I, I I suppose I run. That's mainly my my form of relaxation and hobby. So I do quite a lot of medium distance running i'm not uh, not a crazy long distance runner but um i did my first marathon a couple of years ago and i'd like to try and keep keep the ability to do a sort of 10 miler in my legs so um yeah that's typically what i spend spend my time doing and then i live on the isle of wight so um surrounded by water try and do a few wet things um if the weather's good a bit, bit too cold for me at the moment my wife has got into cold water swimming, which uh, I think the water temperature is about seven degrees at the moment off cows. That is not for me. But when, <laughs> when it warms up, I will get back on my stand-up paddleboard and uh, fall off that a few times. How about cycling then? Because obviously our listeners won't be able to see, but you've got a nice Tour de France-esque uh, post in the background. Is that a passion of yours? Well, I, I, my wife bought me that a few years ago. I, I did a 100-mile, uh, my first sort of 100-mile uh, road cycle event um so yeah that's why i have that and the yellow jersey sort of just gives me a little boost to remember that from a business point of view where, where we want to be but um no I've, I've i've given up the cycling recently and um traded it in problem is you know to get a decent bike ride is two and a half hours and um don't, don't quite have as much time as i'd like to be able to do that so at least you can chuck on a pair of running shoes and in, in 40 minutes, you're pretty knackered. So move to that. Yeah, excellent. Okay. And uh, do you have a favorite color? Uh, yes, simply blue. Um, <laughs> I was thinking why. I mean, I just, it's all I wear. And uh, I've got my grey jumper on today. Um, and it's not just because it's an airborne 
corporate color. I'm not. I'm not just towing the company line. That's a, that's a, that's a personal preference. How about cars then? What, what's your favorite car? If money's no object, everyone's making you millions of pounds. What, what would you uh, invest your money in? Yeah, that is a good question. I, I didn't know the answer to that actually. Or, or I was trying to think. I mean, I've got two kids, so you know, you're not going to buy an expensive car because it's just going to get get ruined. So, no, I was just trying to think back to my sort of childhood and like cars that always grabbed my attention. And I suppose you couldn't possibly drive around the Isle of Wight in it, but um, you know, Magnum PI and his and his and his Ferrari. That's probably the the the, the coolest thing I'd ever seen when I was uh, when I was growing up. So um, maybe just for a week or two, it'd be quite fun to. Pretend I was that guy as I drove around the olive white. Stick on big moustache, that kind of thing. <laughs> excellent, excellent. I like it. Um, and finally, imagine this COVID world is behind us. You're actually allowed to invite uh, guests to dinner. If you could choose any three people, past or present, to invite to dinner, who would it be and what food would you be serving them? <laughs> well, you know, I tried to give this some thought. And actually, I'm I'm going to disappoint you with my answer because, you know, post COVID, actually, all I want to do is have some mates around. You know, even given the choice of, you know, Gandhi and Einstein, actually, just think, you know, I'd quite like to have three of my mates who I haven't really seen for best part of twelve months, and um, you know, just sit and 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 catch up. And the food probably wouldn't matter too much. The the drinks are probably be slightly more important um we might do without the food actually and just move directly to the drinks um so yeah i think maybe like a lot of people listening to this and who've who've been part of lockdown um just just a return to normal be good i'll forego the special guests i think that's a it's a very nice and honest answer joe um and i think we're all with you actually um I think, um, in fact, if, if I look back, you know, to, to before this started last January, I remember having a little bit of a whinge to colleagues of mine saying, I'd just like to spend some time at home because, um, you know, the travel that we all do. But um, but actually, you know, you're right. Uh, it's been a long time without without friends and, and family. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that one. So we tried to get out of this, Gemma. This is your fault as you wished it upon us. Yeah, yeah, no, um, yeah. I'm also wishing it away now. I'd, uh, I'd like to spend some more time out in the house. I'm sure we all would. How, how are you finding that, Jay? Because you must be, you must be used to travelling quite a bit, and um, special same position, aren't you? Stuck at home and. Yeah, same, same deal. Yeah, it's, it's grass is always greener, isn't it? When you're travelling, you, you think I quite like to be at home, and when you're at home, you, you, you crave, you crave a random hotel and getting on a plane. It's, it's funny how it goes. Uh, no, no, same as everybody else. You know, it's been it's been nice to be at home and spend more time with the kids and the, the family. But um, yeah, I think we've done that bit now. Let's um, let's go to some sort of sweet spot, shall we? Some middle ground where we we travel, we socialise, uh, but we also get you know get get some more time at home and keep keep that work life balance. I think that's what we should all try and take away from this uh, slightly strange experience. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, likewise, the social aspect of the conference industry is something I'm definitely missing at the moment with the conferences and what have you. Whether we just go turbocharge at the conferences nonstop and go back too far the other way as a result of this, who knows? Um, but what I'd like to say is 
Thank you, Joe. I think you've been a brilliant guest. I'm sure our listeners would uh, agree that you've been. This has been fascinating. It's been you've been highly entertaining, and yeah, I'd like I'd like to thank you on behalf of the Materials Evolution Podcast on joining us today. Oh well, thank you, Grant. Thanks, Gemma. It's been been a pleasure. Um, really appreciate being invited, and uh, yes, um, look forward to listening to your next guest. Thank you very much, Joe. Cheers.